We'll hear argument now, number 9111188, James Rowland versus the California Men's Colony. Mr. Ching. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 1915A permits uh, persons to proceed in form of papyrus upon the filing of a proper affidavit of indigency. The issue today is whether associations or corporations may also apply and whether, therefore, there are persons under the uh, language of the statute. The relevant events concerning this statute are, are few and, and can be briefly described. Prior to 1959, the informal pauperous statute uh, was limited to citizens. And prior to 1959, the case law is uh, perfectly unequivocal. Those citizens were only natural persons. They were not corporations, and a fortiori, they were also not associations. Well, Mr. Ching, weren't corporations considered to be citizens, at least for purposes of federal court jurisdiction? Uh, the cor corporations were considered citizens for the purpose of diversity jurisdiction. Uh -huh. um, they are not entitled to powers and immunities under the Constitution. Consequently, uh, there was some discretion in According to them, various privileges, such as the informed pauperous, the Second Circuit in two cases held that they were not to be accorded the benefits of the informed pauperous statute. Therefore, uh, up to 1959, uh, the application of the uh, plaintiff in the court below would have been summarily rejected. Well, it would have been rejected in the Second Circuit. It would have been rejected, certainly, in the Second Circuit, uh, with no other... But we know whether it would have been rejected in the Ninth Circuit, for example. Well, I would guess that the period of time between 1938 and 1959 in which no single case arose indicated that uh, there was some unanimity on the point. Uh, I have no other uh, thought about the, the nature and number of cases involved. Um, but uh, in 1959... Congress, with the explicit, singular, and unequivocal intention of according the benefit of informal pauperous to resident aliens and resident aliens alone, substituted for the word citizen in the informal pauperous statute the, the term person. Then for a period uh, from 59 to 69, utterly no litigation at all on the point. Uh, what this would indicate to me, in sum, is number one, the statute, uh, whether referring to citizen or the person, never referred to artificial persons. It only referred to natural persons. Secondly, in the amendment in 1959, the language is, we would extend the same privilege as is now afforded citizens to resident aliens. See, that's the language of what? That is language of the report, the Senate oh. report in the statutory history. What about the House report? Did that say the same thing? I, I do not. Uh, I only had the Congressional News uh, report. I do not know. Uh, however, drawn from this an examination of the statutory reports are two principles. First, that the 
intent of the legislation was only to in include another category of natural person, resident aliens. And principle number two, that Congress has been extremely parsimonious in extending the benefit of IFP to any other groups. Now, this brief summary, of course, comprises the core of the majority. Principle that Congress only intended to, to, to parsimoniously extend the benefits of informal poverty. That's a principle, or, or that's just an observation, I suppose? I guess it's an observation. It's a generalization, which I think is fairly drawn from the statutory history. Well, has the Congress rejected from time to time uh, suggestions to expand the informal pauperous statute? I do not know, Your Honor. Well, then I don't think you have any evidence for your supposition. All right. Well, the, in any case, the single instance in which they have expanded it uh, with an enactment has been this 1959 amendment. The core of the minority position is, uh, it takes note of the fact that in 1948, the Section 1 of uh, Title 1 was amended to uh, create persons, a definition of persons that included corporations and associations. Uh, this would seem, uh, in light of the lack of any reference in Section 1 to 1915, to be an irrelevant definition. It is even more irrelevant in light of the qualification that is explicit in Section 1, that yeah, unless the context is consistent with the definition of persons, it is not to be used. Well, it says unless the context otherwise requires, doesn't it? In unless the, uh, the context otherwise... Or con unless the context in indicates, indicates otherwise. Um, of course, the, the, the meaning of context is, is not spelled out. But surely context must at least include uh, the events uh, surrounding the amendment in 1959 as well as the cases from the third. So you say context means more than the words of the statute itself. Context means the environment or the milieu in which the statute was adopted? Certainly, yes, that is my point, Your Honor. And the legislative history? Certainly, Your Honor. Section 1 then requires us to look at legislative history in every case to be sure it doesn't otherwise require. I would think so, Your Honor. That's but that's very directive. And since, in fact, we are attempting to implement uh, the, the intent of Congress, uh, then certainly we must understand what they mean if they use the word person. What does context not include? <laughs> I would not, I would think that the use of such a general term would not exclude much. Uh, anything, anything at all? I mean, I don't know why they just didn't say then unless there is some reason to think otherwise. And certainly... The word person means, uh, you know, but they didn't say that. They said unless the context indicates otherwise. And, and there is nothing in Section 1 to indicate what context means. Well, I think well, it, it's... The word context comes from the word text. Context means the surrounding text. Yes, and, and con would indicate uh, with or adjoining to. And so... There's textual, there's contextual, there's extra-textual. I, I think context means context. The, 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 the passage in which the word is used. The surrounding, the surrounding statutory language. Don't you think that's what it means? If that were so, that would indicate a restriction to only those statutes which purported to define person in a, in a separate and distinct manner. The cases, uh, the FTC case and so on, uh, dealing with 
the, um, the use of person doesn't seem to indicate such a narrow restriction. Well, really, the, the, the first definition in the dictionary is that it, connection, it, that it is a connection of words um, that uh, is, is, excuse me, um, the parts of a discourse that surround a word or passage and can throw light on its meaning. Uh, it would indicate that we look just to the statute. Well, anything that would indicate its meaning. Yes, I would think that you would look to the text first. There's no doubt about that. No, I said just to the statute. That's, that's a plausible interpretation of context, is it not? Yes, it certainly is. If we don't go beyond the text, do you lose? Uh, no, I, I do not believe that I lose if we are permitted to examine statutory uh, materials related to... But what's your best textual argument? My best textual argument is that which I led with, that is, uh, there has been a consistent restriction uh, to natural persons, both in case law and in the bill. Well, aren't you getting beyond the text of the statute when you say that? I mean, that's your parsimony argument, and you have to go to, I guess you have to look at a lot of congressional history beyond this statute. If you just look at the text... Justice Scalia suggested, is there anything in the text that supports you? Well, well, the, the, and by inference, um, I'm hard put to give you an answer on that. David. The requirement for an affidavit is, of course, uh, tied up with, with the complications of a corporate identity. Um, it's not normal to talk about a corporation making an affidavit, is it? It says that you can't you can't get uh, IFP status unless uh, you make unless the person makes an affidavit that he is unable to pay such costs. Well, such they, affidavit shall state the nature of the action, blah blah blah, and affiance belief that he's entitled to redress. I mean, I guess you could say that uh, the corporation can make an affidavit through one of its officers, but it, it's sort it, of a it stilted use there. And, well, they could not make it directly as implied by the plain meaning of the of the statute. And I would think that uh, tied up with that is the, the inability to determine uh, what the corporate assets are for the purposes of the litigation at hand. Uh, so I suppose without uh, the, the definition uh, uh, of person, uh, the general definition of person, if that weren't in the statute, I suppose you would win. Yes, unequivocally. Because you, you don't usually call them. In common parlance, you wouldn't call a corporation a person. No, I, I would not think so. Uh, Suppose the word poverty in the statute also helps you. you. You don't usually think of a corporation as making an affidavit of poverty. Well, I financial I, or, or do you? I would not. I hate this, but I, I really do believe that a bankrupt corporation could make an affidavit of poverty we, through its. We usually refer to impoverished corporations. We refer to corporations with financial hardship. Corporations that are insolvent. Yes, I mean, there are many other technical terms that would more accurately describe a corporation without funds to pursue litigation. So you don't uh, pin much on the term poverty in the statute? Uh, I do not think it is as significant as the other point Justice Scalia made. Um, I, I suppose I part of the context is also the fact that this statute is providing, uh, is providing for treatment as an indigent and providing uh, public funds to be used... Uh, purposes that otherwise people are required to pay for. 
That's the part of the context, right? That's how the word is used in that yes. context. Yes, at least uh, that range and intent of the legislature was... Public charity is not usually accorded to corporations. Uh, the, the corporations and associations are not of the first concern in terms of public welfare. You know, do, you, do you think that a bankrupt corporation that uh, is bankrupt because it, uh, it can't possibly pay its debt, its assets are much less than its liabilities, do you think that would automatically mean that it could be, uh, it could uh, file an affidavit that is it, that it is entitled to, to be treated as a pauper? There's no reason to think that the bankruptcy, uh, any of the prevailing tests for determining a bankrupt, uh, would automatically be imported into the informal pauper statute. Well, the uh, cor corporation might have, could be, could, could be taking involuntary, could be put in involuntary bankruptcy or take voluntary bankruptcy, even though it has an income of maybe $100,000 a year. Certainly, and, uh, and the practical... And yet, I, don't, I doubt if it would be granted in form of pauper status, would you? Um, I, hesitate to, I hesitate to answer for the Ninth Circuit. However, um, uh, in all seriousness, I do, I do believe income flow is one of the key provisions for determining in form of pauper status. There, there is a difference also when an, when an individual says that that person is unable to pay such costs. You're talking about a person perhaps supporting themselves, getting food on the table and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. When a corporation makes an affidavit that's unable to pay the cost, uh, what factors does it take into consideration? It is simply stating that it is unable to engage in the business for which it was created. Um, and therefore, it would seem to me a lesser claim than that of bread on the table for an individual. Um, and uh, surely the informal pauper statute was more directed to the individual uh, in dire straits than a, than a corporation in dire straits. Well, now, Mr. Ching, in this instance, it, we have an association of prisoners who buy, uh, I guess you concede they individually didn't have any money. Uh, I, uh, the, one of the major problems with the case is the lack of development of facts upon discovery in this instance. We do know of instances in which inmates have considerable money. Um, well, so I, I would not concede that as a theoretical. All right. Let me ask you this. Uh, could the action have been brought as a class action uh, with an affidavit of indigency by the uh, individual, individual plaintiff? I would think plaintiff. so, Your Honor. As a matter of fact... Um, the complaint itself speaks of certification as a, of a class action. Um, I, I do not. So it wouldn't have been impossible for this group to have filed uh, on an indigent basis, well, in effect, through the mechanism of a class action? Well, certainly, Your Honor. I, I think that they could have pursued a class action. I think that's what they should have done. But, counsel, isn't that, doesn't there a danger there that if just because the named plaintiff is indigent, can he bring a class action in form of pauperous if he's got a bunch of Rockefellers in his class? Well, Your Honor, the, the, I would think the IFP status would be granted for him, for the individual law. But then he sues on behalf of the whole class. Yes. Whereas if you made him sue in the association, as he does here, you'd, you'd be... You'd lump all the wealth of the entire group together, and they'd have to be in, uh, without funds as an entity. Well, that's one of the tests that has been that have been proposed. That is lumping, or I, uh, what I'm suggesting is that I think that you will have more in form of pauperous 
actions allowed, if you allow class actions with just an indigent uh, named plaintiff, than you would if you looked at the assets of the entire class, which is what we would do in this case. Well, I suppose that would be true, Your Honor. I mean, part of our concern is the administration of the courts and the, the volume of cases that arise. Uh, in the instance where there is a certified class action, we at least have the confidence to know that there is an interest that is common to all the parties involved. And in, and in addition, it greatly simplifies our, our need to discover uh, individual statuses and individual uh, capacities. Uh, can I bring a class action on behalf of all purchasers of AT&T stock? And just because I happen to be bankrupt, I can... I can bring that class action on behalf of all AT&T stockholders in form of pauperous? Is that well, really the law? No, no, no. I, I had suggested... I thought that's what she said, that so long I had suggested the, that the individual would proceed and would therefore move for certification as a class action. At that point, uh, if the class is going to be maintained, uh, I believe some inquiry as to the individual capacities of the, I see, of the classes I see, would, I see. would then proceed. Uh, there would be a subsequent thing. That makes sense. Well, the, um, the issue of statutory interpretation... Um, May I ask you another question? Yes. You suggested that if there hadn't been this history, the word person would normally be read just to include individuals. I just glancing at the rules, Rule 19 talks about joinder of persons needed for adjudication. So the whole language is all about persons. You, you, you don't think... That oh, well, person. In that regard, I'm also looking at the, the limitation upon the definition of citizen, which preceded in the very same statute, um, and which has been which had been accepted for a considerable period of time. Uh, in light of that, and the use and the amendment, the explicit amendment, only to include resident aliens, I would I would feel that a common definition of person would be uh, appropriate. If there are no further questions, I would uh, reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Ching. Uh, Mr. Weiselberg, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there are three main reasons why the Men's Advisory Council may sue informal pauperous. First, under the plain and unambiguous statutory language, an association may proceed informal pauperous. Second, if this Court does decide to look at legislative history, nothing in the legislative history is contrary to the plain language of the statutes. And third, the statutory context, meaning the overall text, structure, and purpose of the informal pauper statute, does not require a restricted definition of the word person. Turning first to the statutory scheme, 1 U.S.C. Section 1... Def- I'm sorry, Your Honor. How are one and three different Well, one these reasons? Your Honor, the plain um, language is the plain language. And yes, Your Honor, but um, I think 1 U.S.C. Section 1 does have the phrase which re- counsels a court to look to the context. And what I mean well, is that's that... that's part of the plain language, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. Um, I, I right. would say 1 and yeah. 3 are in that way related. But 1 U.S.C. Section 1 defines person to include associations. Section 1 was on the books when Section 1915A was amended to include persons. Section 1 is Congress's own dictionary... It gives a mandatory definition of the word person because it is the definition that Congress itself has written. In Wilson versus Omaha Indian Tribe, this court construed the phrase white person. The court held that Congress was aware of its own dictionary. 
And so when Congress reenacted the law using the phrase white person, Congress was fully aware that the phrase would be construed to cover artificial entities as well as individuals. Now, it makes sense. Because it was the same Congress, after all, that, that enacted that uh, definitional section, right? Yes, Your Honor. Was it really? Well, um, perhaps. How many years elapsed between the people that voted for that definitional section and the people that voted for 1915 uh, as, as amended? Well, Your Honor, the um, uh, Section 1 was amended in, I believe, 1948. Uh, section 1915 was amended in 1959. But I would point out that one year before, in 1958, this court uh, decided the case of United States versus A&P Trucking. And in that case, this court uh, was interpreting a criminal statute that used the phrase whoever. Whoever is defined along with the word person in 1 U.S.C. 1 USC Section 1. This court construed the phrase whoever to include partnerships because partnerships were included in the Section 1 definition. So just one year before Section 1915 was amended, this court decided a case applying Section 1 to construe a federal statute. And it makes sense for Congress to define standard terms in Section 1. That saves Congress from redefining those terms every time a new bill is passed. But Congress can only rely upon the definitions in Section 1 if this court is willing to make those definitions mandatory. The petitioner's claim here is that Congress was silent regarding whether um, an association may proceed in form of pauperous. But I would suggest that Congress spoke loud and clear in the statute. In amending Section 1915A, Congress deliberately used the word person. And Congress chose that word knowing that the word person has a specific standard statutory meaning. The petitioners want that uh, phrase person in Section 1915 to be read as natural persons. But if Congress had wanted only natural persons to proceed in form of paupers, it would have said so in the statute. The statute would have said that natural persons can proceed in form of paupers, or that individuals can proceed in form of paupers, or that citizens and aliens can proceed in form of paupers. Or Congress would have taken the time to craft a specific definition of the word person, just as Congress has done in a variety of other statutory schemes. But Congress didn't do so. Use the word person, which has a standard statutory definition. Now, the petitioners rely um, quite a lot on the legislative history to the amendment to Section 1915A. Um, in response to an earlier question, I'd point out that the Senate report, which is republished in the U.S. Code and Congressional News, I think also reprints the House report, contains it in great detail. So that the um, legislative reports from the two chambers are reproduced there. Uh, and, uh, and those reports do not say that person means only natural persons. There's a paragraph that's two sentences long that's entitled purpose. And all that it says is that the purpose of the amendment is to change the word citizen to the word persons. Well, Mr. Weisselberg, uh, I suppose that under the old original statute that dealt with uh, citizens back in 1892, uh, that that didn't include associations, did it? Well, there was certainly case law that allowed artificial entities of, uh, namely corporations. Maybe a corporation, but I didn't, didn't the old dictionary law in force back in 1892 make clear that it didn't apply to associations? Um, I, I, I don't believe that the version that was in effect at that time included the word associations. So we take it on the assumption that citizen then at least didn't include an association such as you're representing. So when Congress changed citizen to include aliens, presumably it didn't enlarge it. 
Well, um, it uh, several responses to that, Your Honor. First, again, uh, when Congress changed the statute and chose the word person, which was then defined to include a category of people other than uh, uh, merely corporations and aliens, and it specifically includes associations. Um, I yes, also, but it also tells us to look at the context. And, yes, Your Honor. And if the context tells us that it didn't include associations, I guess. Well, Your Honor, I, I suppose I'd suggest that the context here does not exclude associations and does not counsel otherwise. Perhaps I ought to address that. Um, I'd suggest that the Court consider context in the same way that this Court has construed the word context and looked at context <laughs> in interpreting a number of statutory schemes. There are a few cases that come to mind. There, uh, there is uh, Department of Energy versus Ohio, and in that case, this court uh, interpreted the phrase sanction, or the word sanction, and the court said that sometimes looking at a phrase in context gives a meaning that a phrase lacks in isolation, and there the court compared the use of the word sanction in several different subsections of the particular enactment. So I'd suggest that was an example of a court looking at the overall text of a statute to decide context. Uh, and here I'd suggest that context thus refers to the overall text of the statute and not to a legislative history. And when one looks at the overall text and purpose of the informal pauper statute, there is nothing uh, that would suggest, uh, in my mind, that the statute ought to be limited to natural persons only. I, I don't know that that is the strongest argument I've ever heard, that if, if, if Congress were sitting down and thinking about this right now, and you said, well, do you want corporations as well as uh, natural persons to be able to proceed IFP? You say yes. Congress would have said yes. Well, there are plenty of reasons why the Congress would have said yes and why the Congress deliberately used the word person in amending Section 1915. I think this Court has recognized in uh, a number of cases that um, uh, effective advocacy may be brought about uh, through associations and through group litigation. Well, but we're talking about corporations. Well, Your Honor, there are lots of corporations are, of course, frequent litigants in the federal courts. And uh, it may well have been Congress's intent to allow those corporations to continue to litigate, uh, even if they didn't have the funds uh, to uh, support what, what, the litigation. So, so, supposing the secretary of the corporation or the president of the corporation is going to make an uh, informa pauperous affidavit, uh, what, what does he take into consideration? And that will, what sort of corporate picture does he have to have before he can say that the corporation is, is unable to pay the cost? Well, I suppose initially, at the very least, the officer would set out the assets and the liabilities of the corporation and list the income of the corporation. Um, I, I suppose that at a minimum. Well, I'd point out that, of course, the but, statute... But he, he, he has to affirm that he not only has to set out statistics... But he has to swear that the corporation is unable to meet the costs. Isn't yes, that the one? Uh, how do, what decision-making process does he go through? suppose he would look at the assets, again, and the liabilities of the corporation, see if there is a way uh, that the corporation would have the funds to support the filing fee and uh, figure out the cost in that respect, Your Honor. He'd have to go and determine what the filing fee would be and what the cost of the civil litigation would amount to. But I, I would, I'd like to point out that I don't think that process is that much more difficult than it is for an individual. The informal pauper statute doesn't give the courts um, the criteria that are used to determine whether an individual uh, may proceed in formal pauperous. No, that's something but, that uh, with, with an individual, uh, you know, a, a person presumably is thinking about food, shelter, uh, some clothing, 
any liquid, you know, any any cash at all. Uh, and it just doesn't seem to me that a corporation ordinarily uh, thinks in those terms. Well, and, and that might be one reason why this is unlikely to be used by many corporations. I, perhaps it would help address the policy aspects of it by describing the Men's Advisory Council itself in a bit more detail. Uh, there are ten dormitories in Unit 2 of the California Men's Colony. does it make? I mean, uh, the, the argument, I don't care what the Men's Dormitory, today it's the Men's Dormitory Council. Tomorrow it's going to be some association of millionaires well, it, who simply haven't put very much money into this, into this association or corporation. So you have a very impoverished corporation composed of members who are very wealthy. And, and you would have to argue, well, a person is a person. This is an association. The association as an association is poor. Um, Justice Lee, I disagree, and uh, perhaps I can explain why. The reason why I wanted to describe the Men's Advisor Council a little, in a little more detail is that I think it's an excellent example of a situation in which an association is bereft of funds, and actually in this case bereft by action of one of the defendants of the warden. But going back to the, your example, um, Justice Scalia, that of a corporation perhaps deliberately underfunded, the informal pauper statute gives the federal courts and gives the district courts tremendous discretion in determining whether or not an organization or corporation is indigent. And if a corporation is underfunded, that's a usual instance in which a court might look beyond the shell that is the structure of the corporation. I don't know what you mean by underfunded. People bought stock in the corporation. The business didn't do very well. Since it was a losing business, they declined to contribute any more money. But in fact, all of the owners of the stock are millionaires. Is, is that underfunded? It's just a poor corporation. There, there, there's no blame there. It just so happens that it's owned by millionaires. Well, Your Honor, I, I suppose I'd simply suggest that it's a very rare instance when a corporation, even if it is uh, uh, bankrupt or going bankrupt, can't um, spare the $120 filing fee for an action in federal court or funds for, uh, for witness fees. What, what about lawyers? This section uh, 1915 also requires that the court may request an attorney to represent any such person unable to employ counsel. Now, counsel are very expensive. You, 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 you think that in this context, uh, we should interpret that to mean corporations and associations, that uh, the courts are going to appoint counsel to represent corporations? Well, the courts are, are um, free in their discretion, I believe, under that section to request counsel to represent uh, an indigent association, just as the Ninth Circuit requested us to represent this indigent association. Of course, that's on a pro bono basis, as I think this Court recognized also Mr. in the Mallard Weiselberg, decision. Mr. Weiselberg, could this action have been brought as a class action and affidavits of indigency supplied by named plaintiffs? I suppose that uh, it's possible that uh, <clears throat> an inmate may have filed this action on behalf of a class of other indigent uh, inmates at the institution. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this association is one that was formed at the request of the warden with a specific purpose of uh, uh, representing the inmates to give them a representation in a voice in the way the prison affairs are run. This is the organization that exhausted administrative remedies. Uh, this is an organization consisting of elected representatives from different dormitories. So this is a, an organization very well suited to bring this action. And I think in the UAW versus Brock case, this court recognized that it may be better in many circumstances for an organization composed of individuals uh, to bring an action than it would be to proceed through a class action under Rule 23. Is there any way of construing 1915 to say that associations are included within the word person but corporations aren't? 
Um, Your Honor, I think using 1 U.S.C. Section 1, all of the entities that are listed in that section would come within the meaning of the word person. So it's either corporations and associations or or it's neither? Well, I I suppose initially I I would look to 1 U.S.C. Section 1 and and consider all of the entities listed there to be persons if I suppose the Court were to think that for some reason the context of the statute indicates that only several of them. What an association is. Yes, Your Honor. Generally a collection of, uh, of individuals. You mean just anybody can say uh, some bunch of neighbors get together and they just say we are an association? Well, Your Honor, uh, associations are formed in, uh, in many ways, uh, I suppose. But the question here isn't whether associations per se can litigate in federal court, because they can. The only question here is whether indigent associations may proceed under the informal pauper statute. And to the extent there are questions well, standing and such, they apply for all. you have to recognize it. Uh, even you have to recognize what an association is. Yes, Your Honor. To get in form of And it would, of course, mean that people, for instance, landowners wanting to fight a zoning change could form an association and not fund it and claim indigent status and get a lawyer appointed. Well, in that circumstance, Several responses to that, Your Honor. First, I suppose uh, many different groups can form an association, but again, if, uh, if that sort of an association sought to proceed in form of paupers, the district court would be free to look at the assets of the individual members of the association. Uh, but um, why, why is that? that? Why would it be free to look at the assets of the individual members? Well, um, Your Honor, uh, the, uh, the courts have said simply that there's a lot of discretion, enormous discretion, in the judges in terms of how... So one judge could look at the assets of the individual members and another judge would not, and either one would be correct? Well, Your Honor, um, I, think that, I think that the discretion will have to be guided by some future decisions as this area of law develops. I mean, again, the... Well, but what is the rule, in your view, that ought to be enunciated? When an association files for IFP, yes. may a court consider the assets of the individual members or only those of the uh, association? Well, I think initially the court ought to simply look at the affidavit that is submitted on behalf of the association. And in the Atkins case, the Supreme Court case... Uh, from I, a, I don't think you've answered my question. Okay. Well, I, I think initially the court ought to look to the affidavit which describes the, af, the assets of the association. But the court would want to know, in essence, the purpose of the association... Uh, whether it was formed in some way, perhaps well, now, to avoid the... Why, why don't you give me an answer to the question and then explain. Does a court look to the assets only of the association, or does it look to the assets of the individual members? I believe the court should look to the assets of the association only unless the materials give the court a reason simply to look further, say a suspicion that the organization was not adequately funded by the members. Uh, Something like that, Your Honor. Some indication from the papers. Suppose it's plain the association hasn't got any money, but it's also just as plain that the members of it do. Well, I'd see no reason why the court couldn't look to the members of uh, of the association. You only look to the to the association exclusively if you if you uh, find that it has so much money of its own that it doesn't deserve in form of papers. Well, Your Honor, um, if it doesn't have any money, then you look to always look to the members. Is that it? Your Honor, I, I would say that the court should look to the affidavit first, which would normally set out the assets of the organization, and it would probably, I, I would assume in this circumstance, give an indication of the purpose from the organization. And from that, Your Honor, the court would have uh, some uh, 
understanding of the purposes of the organization. What about a partnership that has filed its articles of partnership according to law? Ordinarily, Your Honor, in a partnership, one looks at the assets of the members of the partnership. The court would be free to do that. Well, a fortiori, I suppose you ought to look to the, because a partnership is treated more as an entity in more circumstances than an association, I suppose. And yet you say look to the assets of the partners. Well, you know, again, perhaps this is a good instance in which a court wouldn't look past the assets of the organization. I mean, in this case, the organization consists of elected members from the prison who were formed by, you know, at the request of the warden with the purpose of addressing administrative problems within the prison itself. And under those circumstances, it would be difficult to say that individual elected representatives, people who are serving because the warden wanted the inmates to have a voice, should be forced on their own to pay the assets, even if they were able to gather the funds. I mean, in this case, the warden prohibited the organization from collecting funds. The record clearly states that the organization couldn't have an account, couldn't collect funds through a fundraiser of any type. So you have an organization which was formed to represent the inmates and was made indigent by one of the defendants in the action itself. So I would think this is a good example of a case in which a court would look at the assets of the organization, the bona fide purpose of the organization, and not look further than that. I assume you think the same about corporations as you do about partnerships and associations, that you look to the stockholders? Well, Your Honor, I would think that the courts are very free to borrow from general principles of corporate law when one pierces the corporate veil. Oh, but that would mean you normally wouldn't look to the stockholders, unless there's some special malice or fraud or something involved. You don't look to the stockholders. So it's enough that the corporation is impoverished. I would say that in general, yes. But, Your Honor, I don't want to – Suppose I form a corporation to do public interest litigating functions, a public interest litigating firm, only its causes, the causes it wants to litigate are very bad causes, so it can't raise any money. It raises very little money. No problem, right, because it will be able to proceed in form of pauperous and even to have the court appoint counsel. Extraordinary. I think the court would want to look and see if the person who formed the organization did so having funds on his or her own and simply underfunded the organization. Well, no, but there's no fraud involved here. I thought you said normally you don't look past the corporation unless the usual reasons that you pierce the corporate veil. There's nothing underhanded about setting up a corporation with very small capital. There's nothing evil about that. That's perfectly valid. There's no fraud. Well, Your Honor, I mean, under those circumstances, I assume the court would look to the assets of the organization. So then whenever you have a poor corporation, you do look behind, you pierce the corporate veil. Well, no, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I thought I said that the court would look initially to the assets of the corporation, and if there was a reason under generally accepted principles of corporate law to look past the assets of that organization, the court would have the discretion. Well, we're just going around again. As I say, under normal principles of corporate law, you don't pierce the corporate veil unless there's some fraud. That's correct, Your Honor. But, frankly, I know the court has – we've taken an awful lot of time discussing what may appear to be this practical problem. But, in general, I am not at all certain that the courts will have difficulty assessing when organizations can go and form a pauperous, and I don't really know that this is something which will come up much. I mean, frankly, the Southern District of New York decided the Harlem River case 15 years ago. In that case, the district court held that associations and corporations are persons within the meaning of the informal pauperous statute. 
I think this Court can take note of the fact that the Southern District in New York is a district which has quite a number of corporations and associations. And yet, since the Harlem River case, no case has reached the Second Circuit on this issue. There's no other reported case in the Southern District of New York. I don't know that this is something which is going to come up often. Also, I would point out that uh, if organizations are bringing lawsuits on behalf of individuals, it may well be that there would be a reduction of litigation in the federal court because an association suit may replace suits of many individuals. So first, I, I don't know that this is something which will cause a problem for the courts, and I don't know that it will come up very often uh, at all. I'd also like to point out the, the informal pauper statute, Section 1915, doesn't even give guidelines as to assess the indigency of individuals, and yet the courts have managed to fashion their own rules to determine when individuals can proceed in formal paupers. And the courts have developed that jurisprudence and have not had difficulty in developing it. And I'd suggest that the courts, if uh, associations or corporations do occasionally sue under this informal paupers statute in the future, will have no difficulty developing that jurisprudence either. I know that the petitioners have suggested that uh, legislative history means context and that the court ought to look to legislative history. I, I'd suggest that context means overall text and purpose of a statute, and that if this court looks to the legislative history in this case, it does it for the same reasons that the court ordinarily looks to legislative history, and that is if the statute is deemed ambiguous in any respect, or if there is an argument that interpreting the statute literally would frustrate the uh, intent of uh, the legislators. Um, I think that the language of the statute is clear. The statute is not ambiguous. Uh, section 1915 says that persons may proceed in form of paupers, and 1 U.S.C. Section 1 says that persons include associations. So it's not an ambiguous statute, and one should not look to the legislative history under that, uh, for that reason. If there is a claim that interpreting the statute literally would frustrate the intent of the legislators, I think this court in Union Bank versus Wallace said that a party making that argument has an exceptionally heavy burden to meet. What would you say if the, what would you say if the committee report says, uh, we know we've uh, uh, used the word person in this statute, but we have no intention that uh, that, that word person means what, uh, what the general definition of person is in a I think, that's, statute. I think that would be a much harder case for me, Your Honor, and that might be a circumstance in which, in which uh, 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 the legislative history would indicate otherwise. But we don't have that at I all here, Your Honor. the legislative history has to say that in order to make a difference. Yes, Your Honor, I think it does. And it doesn't say that at all here. The legislative history contains some references to aliens, and it may well be that some legislators were motivated to amend the informal pauper statute to allow aliens to proceed in form of pauperous. You acknowledge, though, that legislative history is relevant within, within the, it, it is part of the context. No, Your Honor, I don't think you that it comes in. You just said that. No, I, what, I'm sorry, Your Honor. What I meant to say is the court considers legislative history, in essence, for two reasons. One, if a statute is ambiguous, and this statute is not ambiguous. Second, if a party makes a claim that interpreting the statute literally is absurd or would lead to absurd consequences, or that it was contrary to the, uh, uh, would thwart the intent of the legislators. Uh, that's a circumstance in which this court has in the well, past. You said it would be a much harder case if uh, the committee report said we don't intend to apply the general uh, definition of person. Yes, and sir. We, and we don't intend to include associations and corporations. And you said that would make a difference. I said that, that would make it a much, a much harder case, Your Honor, because... 
It was because it's still not context. No matter how clear it is, it's not context. Your Honor, I, context. what I'm saying, what I, what I mean to say is that I don't think that context includes legislative history. I think if this Court looks to legislative history, it does for the well, other reasons. It wouldn't be any harder case in my example. Well, sure, it'd be a harder case because you have to overcome the argument that your reading is absurd. And that's your saying. That's what you'd look at it to see if it was absurd, and you'd say no. That's right. But it's harder to that extent. You've got one more hurdle to cover. That's right, Your Honor. Yeah. There's no inconsistency in your position. You're making alternative arguments. All I wanted to point out is that I think that a party that's making the argument that interpreting a statute literally has an exceptionally heavy burden to meet, and it is so heavy that the, that, that argument failed in Griffin, it failed in Mansell v. Mansell, it failed in Ardestani, and it, uh, it must fail here. Well, if there are no further questions, I... Thank you, Mr. Weisselberg. Uh, Mr. Ching, you have 12 minutes remaining. Yes, Your Honor. I have two brief, very brief points. The first is this counsel point, which crops up again. If, in fact, we have to take corporations and associations simultaneously because of the definition of Section 1, then it means the 19, under provisions of 1915, uh, each of those will have to have appointed counsel. There no, it doesn't at all. The statute doesn't say he must appoint counsel or even he may appoint counsel. The statute Certainly says right. he may request an attorney exactly right. represent any such person. And my the point, lawyer can say no. And my point is that corporations never appear except through counsel. And a fortiori, neither can associations. There is internally an inconsistent provision. Well, neither do individuals generally appear without counsel. Well, informal pauperous individuals appear without counsel all the time. Uh, my, my point being that if the general rule regarding representation of corporations is followed through, the statute does not adequately address uh, the special needs of, counts, of corporations and associations to appear. Well, that's, that's just a different rule. That, that doesn't mean that they can't uh, 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 be, uh, have informal pauperous status. All it means is that you can have it, but in, in order to get into court, you've got to have a lawyer. Yes. Well, Bring your lawyer. Bring your lawyer. Tell your lawyer that you're broke and he should... Uh, meet you at the, he, <laughs> the courthouse, yes. He should... Uh, come well, they got a lawyer here without the help of the court, didn't they? Or did, was he appointed by the court? The, your opponent? Uh, he was appointed by the court. He by the court, Pro bono. Uh, my point is that you, uh, that under the provisions of the statute... He's shaking his head. He shouldn't do that during your argument, but he... <laughs> <laughs> and, and so am I, because I was appointed by the court without, represent, uh, without uh, authorization other than that. But uh, the, the only point I make is if the statute is wor worded in terms of discretionary appointment of statute, of counsel, that is inconsistent with the concept that associations or corporations could be informal pauperous because they must appear through counsel. No, but many of these uh, informal cases, there are volunteer associations of lawyers, uh, pro bono groups that do volunteer legal services without the judge intervening. They draft the complaint and so forth. And that could have happened here whether, in fact, it did or not. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, it was a simple point, and <laughs> well refuted. Um, I'm prepared to submit the matter. Thank you, Mr. Ching. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.